And I want to spend some time just talking to you about something very important that's very foundational. We're going to be, keep coming back to this time and again throughout our study this morning. And I'm going to invite you to Romans chapter 1. If you could find Romans chapter 1 in your copy of the Scriptures, I want to begin by highlighting verse 16, kind of laying a foundation for our time together in the Word today, because this is essential to our understanding of the gospel. It's essential to our defense of the gospel. It's also essential to our communication of the gospel and of course, in that, it is very essential to our disciple-making process. If we get this wrong, we set ourselves on a path to get a lot of other things wrong. And eventually, if those errors keep being made, we run the risk of compromising the truth of the gospel. And then what we are left with is something that has no power to save or to transform at all. Look at verse 16 with me of Romans 1, as you have found your places there. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason that he's not ashamed is because it is the power of God that brings salvation. That's a key word that I want to come back to. Salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. The gospel, of course, of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, that has with it built in this power, right? What does it say the power is for? It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes. And I want to focus in on the word salvation today because this is critical in the foundation of everything that we're going to talk about related to the gospel. The reason that Jesus died on the cross was to save everyone who would believe from the penalty of their sin. That's why he died. So sin and the existence of sin and the fact that everyone is a sinner must have a central place in our understanding of and communication of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to save people from their sins. He didn't die on the cross to give them a better life. He didn't die on the cross so that they could be free from all physical disease or healthy, wealthy, and wise. All of those concepts cheapen the gospel. Jesus died on the cross, and that gospel has the power to save me from my sin and then set me on a path whereby I can cooperate with the Holy Spirit and be completely renovated from the inside out as I grow more and more free from the power of sin with the prospect that one day I will certainly be free from the very presence of sin. Not so that I can get something out of it, or receive something out of it. Now certainly there are results of salvation in our belief in Jesus, right? We understand that. We do gain some things as believers, 
One of those is we have a home in heaven with God forever. Aren't we thankful for that today? Absolutely. How many of us this morning have loved ones who were there that we're just waiting to see once again, right? We're going to have that reunion with them. But the core and the central emphasis of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. Eternal life is a benefit that I receive. A home in heaven is a benefit that I receive. You see, in order to fully appreciate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and to fully understand my salvation, I have to understand how desperate I am for Jesus. And I have to be confronted with my sin in order for that to be a reality in my heart and in my mind. And we're going to talk today about propagating the gospel, sharing the gospel, making disciples, presenting the gospel. And if my presentation of the gospel is void of dealing with the issue of people's sin, then I am shortchanging and I am cheapening the gospel. Because Jesus died to pay for people's sins. And he died so that they could primarily be rescued from that sin, going from being the enemy of God to being his friend, because now instead of being at war with God, they're at peace with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And if I mess with that message and I demean it or dilute it in any way, and I fail to make sure that people understand that the primary reason that they need a Savior is because they are a sinner, then I'm missing the point. And I'm flirting with compromising the authenticity of the gospel. And at the very least, I'm offering them a cheaper version of the gospel. And if it goes far enough, it's not even going to have the power to save them from their sins. Paul says, I'm not afraid of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation. Salvation from my sin. So with that foundation in mind, I want us to work through our study together this morning to be encouraged, to be challenged, maybe convicted, however God uses it in your heart and life. This is who we are as a faith community. We're to be preserving and propagating the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Without it, we have no reason to gather here today. So I want to talk to you about defining the gospel. We'll go to Romans chapter 5 to, to look at some, a verse, and then later in verses 8 and 9, what does Paul say about it? Therefore, since we have be, been declared righteous by faith, that's justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have the emphasis here, declared righteous. Why do I need to be declared righteous? By this faith in Jesus Christ, believing the gospel. Why do I have to be declared righteous? Because I am morally bankrupt. I have no righteousness on my own. There's no way that I can be righteous. There's no way that I can have enough righteousness for God to forgive my sins. I need someone else's righteousness. And that's what Jesus provides. In his 
vicarious atonement on the cross, dying in our place for our sins. He provides that righteousness, and there's this transferal that takes place that Paul talks about elsewhere, where the righteousness of Christ is transferred to my account because my account has a zero balance. I receive the righteousness of Jesus, and because of that, not that I am righteous, but I'm declared to be righteous through justification. And because of that, I can have a relationship with the Father. I can approach the Father in prayer. I can walk with Him. I can enjoy His presence in my life and know what it is to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The door is swung open to all of those things that I will experience, but only after my sin has been dealt with. It is my sin that has created a gap between me and the Father. And Jesus died to pay for that. He died to pay that penalty that I couldn't pay. And not only that, He gives me righteousness so that I can relate to the Father. It's through Jesus Christ that we have this relationship with the Father. Our sin must have a remedy. Verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter, but God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Now that is not the most attractive subject matter to approach with people today, but it's necessary. It is necessary for us to engage people in our culture with the truth of the gospel. We need to love them enough to talk to them about their sin and their need for a Savior so that they too can be saved from the wrath that is coming. When's the last time that we had a conversation with somebody in our culture about the wrath of God against sin? I mean, just think about it. What a way to win friends and influence people, right? (laughs) But wait a minute, wait a minute. That is exactly what we need to be doing. We need to help people understand their desperation for Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you to leave here today and to go out and just try to find people to offend, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. If we're going to tell people that they need a Savior, we've got to tell them why. (laughs) Why do they need a Savior? Well, because we're all sinners, and because that sin had to be remedied, it had to be paid for, and we have to talk about it. So don't cheapen the gospel. Don't short sell the gospel, okay? Make sure that when you present it, you're dealing with the core issue. And the core issue is Jesus died for your sins and you can have freedom from that, then you can enjoy eternal life. Then you can enjoy heaven with all those others who have believed. But the first and most essential thing is that we appropriate this payment for our sin by faith in Jesus, by grace, through faith alone. So as we define the gospel, I would offer you those thoughts in helping that we might clearly and accurately understand it. We read a description back in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15 earlier where Paul pulls in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
at the core of what we're asking people to believe is that Jesus died for their sins, that he truly died and that he was buried as a result, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. All of those are essential elements in describing the gospel. As we become acquainted with the gospel and as we know the gospel well, we will hopefully be able to identify false gospels. I want to share with you just four things here, not in a completely comprehensive or exhaustive way, but just to get you thinking about what you're hearing in the world today and what may be masquerading as gospel when in fact it really isn't. You're going to have some people say that all are basically good. That's the all are basically good gospel. That uh, you don't really need to worry about things, that everybody's okay, they're going to make it to heaven uh, because God loves them and he would never punish them or send them to hell. And basically people are good and we just need to believe in the goodness of humanity. There are a lot of groups who are meeting today that preach that gospel. But what does the Bible say about who we are? By the way, what we're going to look at today is one of the powerful proofs that the Bible wasn't written by human beings, right? The author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, and he guided human writers to communicate on the written page what God wanted us to know about himself. But it wasn't from human origin. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. But it was the Holy Spirit of God who came alongside and guided them in this process. How do we know that? Well, this is one of those powerful proofs. As we read a couple of passages here, one Old Testament, one New Testament, we're going to see that man would not have been this honest about themselves, okay? We only get this perspective of humanity from God, okay? We wouldn't have said this about ourselves, guaranteed. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, God does not exist. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise or one who seeks God. All have turned away. All are alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That is the brutal, honest truth about man without God. There is no one who does good, not even one. There's nothing good in us. And of course, in the New Testament, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, all people are not basically good. We are basically bad. We are basically sinful. We are basically evil and wicked without God. And we need Jesus' payment on the cross for our sins. We need to believe by grace through faith in Christ alone to be rescued from our sins. We are not basically good. We are all basically on our way to eternal damnation in the lake of fire. That's the truth. And we need Jesus desperately. There's what I call the religious gospel. Just check all the boxes, practice religion, and you will be okay. That's the way to heaven. Just do that and everything is going to be fine. And sadly, there are rooms full of people today who are buying in to that gospel, who gather and call themselves a church, who are being religious. And what's the problem? problem is they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's believing in him and having access to the Father and living under the control of the Holy Spirit and making more disciples that will do the same. It's all relational. It's not religion. And Jesus invites us to accept himself as the only way, the only truth, and the only life in John 14. And no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Relational. It's not about religion. In Acts chapter 4, there is no salvation, or there is salvation in no one else, rather, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it, it being the name of Jesus. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And I want you, I want everybody in the room to think about this with me today. Do you have this relationship that we're talking about? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus in your life? Who is Jesus to you today? Is he your savior? Because you have believed in his message that he did die for you on the cross to save you from your sins? And because you've understood that, you've believed in him for that salvation? He is your Savior as a result? Is that the experience that you have? Is that the reality that you have in your life? Do you know him as your Savior? If you don't, you're in a great place this morning because there are many people here who can answer your questions and help you understand who Jesus is and can help you trust him for salvation. I hope that you'll search Myself or Pastor Stephen, who'll be coming later to do announcements, search us out and just have that conversation before you leave here today. But who is Jesus to you? Is he your savior? Have you trusted him? Do you have a relationship with him? Or are you just practicing religion? One way leads to eternal life. The other leads to eternal death. There is no in between. And what you and I do with Jesus determines our eternal destiny. We also have what's commonly called the prosperity gospel. You've heard of this. There are those who will be preaching today that Jesus died on the cross to make you healthy, that Jesus died on the cross to heal you of all your physical diseases. And if you'll just have enough faith in him, he will heal you from your diseases. Oh, by the way, Jesus died to make you wealthy and wise too. He wants you to be business savvy and he wants you to accumulate all the wealth that you possibly can accumulate in this life and live a lavish lifestyle as a sign and symbol of his blessing and favor on your life. And there are many who will take Isaiah 53 and twist it out of its context and misinterpret it to teach these things you read Isaiah 53, and if you read the New Testament literature as well, it is clear that Jesus died to accomplish one primary and necessary thing. He died to take care of our sins. It was spiritual. He didn't die on the cross so that we could be rich Americans. By the way, that kind of gospel really only works in one place in the world. Do you understand that? It works here. But you tell me if you've ever been to an impoverished nation where they have absolutely nothing, does it work there? 
Some of you sitting in our audience today have been there. You've served there as missionaries or you've taken, you've taken short-term trips. Listen, the gospel is for everyone who has believed. And if we buy into a prosperity gospel, we are saying that only a very select few of the world's population can really know Jesus in his fullness. That's baloney is what that is. The gospel is for everyone who has believed. Jesus died on the cross to take care of the sins of the world. And everyone who believes experiences that appropriation of his sacrifice. It was spiritual has nothing to do with our pocketbooks or our physical health or how wise we are. Now, it does not mean that God doesn't provide and bless those. Of course he does. But the gospel that we preach has to work everywhere or it isn't the gospel at all. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower... He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You will never see a call to excessive living in the words of Jesus or any other biblical writer when it comes to discipleship. You'll never find that. You'll never see it anywhere. Look at Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What did he do? He gave himself for our sins. And there we come back to that central truth that I said would be repeated throughout today. That's why Jesus died. He died to take care of our sins. And he does as we exercise our responsibility of faith. The final one, and I'm sure none of these are new to you, you have the faith plus works gospel. Oh, I initially believe and God does his part for my salvation, but after God does his part, I have to do my part in order to be really saved. So I have to do all kinds of good works, and if I don't, I can jeopardize my security in Christ. I can jeopardize my eternal life. In fact, there are many who believe that you can actually lose your security and lose your eternal life based on your performance. The truth of the matter is this. God does not love you any more or any less based on your performance, ever. It's not about your performance. It's about what Jesus did himself on the cross. And as we believe in that, we experience this salvation. It's not by our works, as Ephesians 2 tells us. You know these verses, don't you? You could probably quote them. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. The grace and the faith are God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Titus 3 reminds us of the same truth. He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Faith plus works never saved anyone. If you're putting your faith and your performance to get you to heaven, to get you into a right relationship with God, 
you're going to be disappointed and you will suffer damnation. We experience eternal life and freedom from the penalty of our sin as we place our faith alone in Christ, not our faith plus our works. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about protecting the true gospel. We are supposed to do this as a faith community. We need to be able to define it. We need to be able to identify false versions of it. But we also need to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as we find in the book of Jude. We must be protecting it and preserving it, we could say. There, of course, are warnings in the scripture that cause us to think this way. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Now, those are strong words, aren't they? Paul is saying, let these people who preach a false gospel be cursed. Why would he say that? Well, he would say that because of what is at stake. We're talking about life and death here. We're talking about eternal life versus eternal death. We're talking about the true gospel versus false gospels. And Paul says, look, we have given you the true gospel. And you use what you've been taught as we have given you the true gospel as the way to identify anything else that is false. And let a curse be on those who propagate, who pursue, who communicate a false gospel. And so he warns the Galatian believers, we need the same kind of warnings today. Second Peter, we have these words in chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. What does that tell us about false teaching? It takes up residence in the church. It's right here. It's among us. These are people who are infiltrating. These are people who are not spirit-controlled. These are people who are probably false professors of faith in Jesus and they are teaching wrong things and false things under the banner of Christianity. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. And there are plenty of these who are masquerading as being preachers of truth, when in all reality they are preaching damnable heresies. There needs to be a calling out to of them as, as Jesus did of the scribes and Pharisees and in their heretical uh, legalism. Paul calls out people by name who are being destructive to the church and we must be doing the same as is appropriate as well. Next of all, in this protecting the gospel, I think we need to understand the impact of the gospel. And we need to communicate that to people. We need to believe it ourselves and practice it. Now, I'm not going to read all of these verses. I've given you a long list of things. I want to go through them. But I'm not going to read all of these verses. I do want to make this suggestion. If you could find your place in 1 John chapter 1. 
And I want you to strongly consider, as a result of our time together today, that you would do a deep dive whenever you can, the soonest available time that you have, on the book of 1 John. Because 1 John was written to show believers what was characteristic of saving faith. If you say you know God, if you say that you truly are knowing God, then these are the things that will be evident in your life. They are not things that you do to earn salvation or a relationship with God. They are things that you will be involved with as a result of a relationship with God. What are they? Let's run through them quickly. This was part of protecting the true gospel. You see, what we find today that is being taught is a gospel that it doesn't matter if it changes your life or not, right? You can just, you can just be who you are. You can express yourself in the way that you want to because that doesn't really matter. And, and really what happens and what's emerging from our church is a gospel that doesn't change anything. Now, I'm not... Uh, advocating for legalism and for checklists and, and for us to walk around policing each other. But I am saying this, that Paul wrote in Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And the old things pass away and everything becomes new. There will be profound changes in your life if you're truly a believer. And First John talks about it. Let's walk through these quickly. You'll be walking in the light instead of in darkness, as he says in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1. You will have a relationship with God and you'll be confessing your sin. You won't be denying the existence of sin in your life, but you'll be confessing and being uh, restored to fellowship with the Father because of you confessing sin and turning from it. You're also going to be obedient. Look there at chapter 2 with me, beginning in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Listen, how we live matters. How we live matters. Yes, it's by grace, absolutely. But the gospel should be changing us. We should be different. He says, I'm writing that you don't sin. Don't abuse God's grace by just living any way that you want to. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's that theme again. He died for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. There's obedience. In chapter 2, further down, verses 9 through 11, the one who knows God is going to be loving the brethren. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, they will not love the world, the system of the world. Look at verse 15 with me of chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The passionate pursuit of satisfaction and fulfillment in anything other than Jesus is love of the world. If I am going to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in my pursuit of fulfillment and satisfaction, I'm not finding it in Jesus. I love this world more than I love Jesus. 
And if I live that way consistently without any repentance, without any change in my life, I need to question whether or not I truly know God. Because the believer is going to be set on a path of passionately pursuing, uh, passionately pursuing fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus, not the world. And so we test our faith based on these things. In chapter 2, further down, those who know God walk in truth and not error. They have discernment. They also have righteousness from Jesus in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, the indwelling presence of the Spirit. The Spirit has been given to them. These are truths about the gospel. This is how the gospel impacts our life and changes us. Have you been changed? Are you in the process of being changed because you have believed the gospel and Jesus has saved you from your sins? We need to preach a life-changing, transformational gospel. It has the power to do that. One of the things that has brought me very close to this truth recently has been the opportunity that I have had to assist in planting a church in Wyoming for re-entering citizens. Almost everyone who attends the, the services that they have weekly are people who have spent extended periods of time in prison, who've come out of prison and are now re-entering society. And this church has been started as a safe place for those people and their families to come into, to be taught and trained in the scriptures, and also to be involved in service that may or may not be available to them in other uh, church settings. And I love this concept. I told the Pastor John, who's starting the church, whenever we first talked about it, I said, I love this because it, it gives the church a reality check as to whether or not it truly believes the gospel that it's preaching. Because the gospel is transformational. The gospel can transform someone who has raped somebody else. The gospel can transform someone who has murdered someone else. The gospel can transform someone who has molested someone else. And on and on the list of things go that the gospel has the power to save people from and transform them from. That's why we have to stay focused on why Jesus died. If we deviate from this purpose that Jesus did die to rescue us from our sins, then we cheapen the gospel, but we also just strip all the power out of the gospel. See, that's the gospel that we preach. Do we believe that gospel? That he truly can transform people. Not too long ago, there was a memorial service that was held for an individual who passed, who was in this church for re-entering citizens. And he had hurt some people very deeply in his past, some of them in his family. Those family members were contacted and invited to the memorial service. They live across the country. The church invested heavily financially to pay for their way here, paid the airline fee and provided a hotel and meals while they were here. They agreed to come, even though they had been hurt deeply. And they said, you know, we're coming because we've heard of this profound change that's happened in our relative." 
We want to meet the people who have helped him, and we want to meet the people who, who have brought him up and, and guided him to this change in his life. At least one whom he had hurt in his past stood at his memorial service and testified to the change that they had witnessed in his life. That's the gospel that we have. That's the gospel that we believe and that we preach. And it's the gospel that we must protect and speak well because it truly changes people's lives. No matter how morally bankrupt they've been, no matter how evil, whatever evil things that they have done, the gospel of Jesus can save from those sins. It can save from all of those sins. And there's not one sin that it doesn't have the power to rescue someone from. It does it all. So with that in mind, let me encourage you with these words as we close. This is the gospel then that we have the privilege of sharing to the world. And we find, of course, that being given to us in what is often called the Great Commission. These are familiar verses. These are the words that Jesus left with his followers. Go and make disciples of all the ethnicities, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do we do it? Well, it takes a missional view of life, doesn't it? As I go about, I'm going to be in the process, wherever I go, of making disciples. It's not just a, a worship center activity or an event that is held on this campus. It is the way I live my life outside of here. I have a missional view of life, and I'm going to go about making disciples. It's obviously intentional. As we minister together, everything we do should have as its goal to make disciples, and we have to be intentional about that. There's also a broad aspect to this. I need to be involved in doing this with all the ethnicities. One of the cool things about living in this country is we have a lot of ethnicities around us. We can be obedient to this command and not even ever have to leave. But yet God will call many to leave, won't he? And he'll send them to the uttermost parts of the earth to reach people groups who still need to know Jesus. And we need that broad view. We need to embrace that view. It's also a confessional view of, of salvation. It's confessing my faith in Jesus publicly as I'm baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, as I speak as the ambassador of Jesus, the ministry of reconciliation. And it's comprehensive too, isn't it? Teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded. And as I propagate the gospel and make disciples, all of these things are necessary for me to do it well. So what is the church? It truly is a faith community that preserves and propagates the true gospel. I hope we understand it well, maybe even better than we did before today. And I hope that we'll encourage one another and embrace the opportunities that God has given us.